Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today, returning, finally, at long last, to discuss heaven in the New Testament, Alexandria Grace Olson. Welcome so much uh, for, for uh, thank you so much for joining me again, and um, and sorry that we had to reschedule this eight times. That was, I think, entirely my bad. No, 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 definitely. It was definitely my bad, too. Uh, for the most recent one, I honestly completely forgot that we were even going to do it. And so I, you know, it, you're not alone in that. I was definitely culpable as well. Um, and thank you again for having me. I always yeah. love doing this. I always love talking you, about it with you. I think you are the, the first five-timer on the show. I think you are the first, <laughs> you're the first five-timer. Uh, and I I'll couldn't think it. of a better person I'll take to do it. Um, for those who uh, who did get the chance to listen to the last couple of episodes that we've been doing, you would know that we have been on a journey talking about death and heaven and angels and all kinds of different things related to the end of our lives and then the life eternal. It's a complicated subject. And uh, we first kind of addressed death. What does death look like? How do we talk about death in the Bible? Um, that episode was on the bonus feed for the Patreon subscribers. Uh, if you have interest in hearing that or any of the other bonus episodes, please go to patreon.com slash transregretsnoopy. Uh, you can go there. Um, if you subscribe, you can get all the bonus episodes, access to our Patreon Discord, and all sorts of other fun stuff. Anyway, the second one we did was about heaven and angels it largely i think turned mostly into a conversation about the book of enoch uh and and enoch is a fascinating text and it did a really good job i think of taking us through um what ancient jewish ideas of um ancient sort of israelite ideas of what they thought that death and the afterlife might look like and enoch obviously was a jewish text from uh from the period between when most of the Old Testament was written and the coming of Jesus and the writing of the New Testament. And the Book of Enoch also directly influenced uh, a lot of the New Testament writers. You see it referenced in a few places, and if you haven't had the chance to check that out yourself, please do. It's really, really interesting and uh, pretty far out at times. Um, But now we want to talk about the New Testament in heaven. Because we know, as Christians, that everything changes when Jesus comes, right? When Jesus lives among humans and dies and comes back to life, resurrects, and then raises up to heaven again, the rules kind of change. Everything changes. They had to make a whole nother testament, even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is interesting. I think we, we mentioned it last last episode. The, the Old Testament heaven mostly refer- well there's three heavens kind of the heaven being the sky the heaven then being the stars and then the third heaven being god's dwelling place 
um, which is what we see in Enoch, the, the, the fiery palace that is hot as fire, but also cold as ice. It does a really good job at getting across that idea that this is something completely incomprehensible to humanity and to anything that we've experienced. It's just completely beyond our, our knowing and beyond our experience. And, um, but the New Testament is not so much, it's not so much about the place. <laughs> there, there was, there, there's, there's, there's revelation, which I'm, I'm sure we might touch on at some point, that takes a lot, you know, it takes a lot of inspiration from Enoch in the visual description of the apocalypse and the coming of heaven and everything like that. But most of, most of New Testament talk about heaven seems to be about heaven in a much more conceptual manner not so much in a physical place. And, and you know, I, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about that. I think the first thing that we should distinguish is what we're talking about when we talk about heaven, right? Because a lot of people's idea of heaven has this paradise of God with man um, merged with where we as individuals in the year 2022 go when we die now. Um, assuming Jesus doesn't come back tomorrow, which would be groovy, but... Assuming that doesn't happen, where do dead people go? Where have they been going? Um, do they go somewhere, or are they just dead until the resurrection? So from Genesis to Revelation, we get a lot of different ideas of what happens, but ultimately at the beginning of Genesis, God is with man, and at the end of Revelation, God is with man again. So it's like a full circle idea, right? Beginning and end, Alpha and Omega. Um, the ultimate uh, realization of the kingdom of God is not uh, a place where humans get all the things that they wanted when they were alive. It is the reconciliation of God's creation with God in one place. That, I think, is an easier subject to pin down. We're going to talk about that, I think, a little bit later. But this idea of where human beings go now when they die changed a lot in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Actually, in the Hellenistic period, this is around the 30-ish BC, this idea of heaven, where good people go uh, when they die, starts to sort of gain some popularity. And there was a movement in the 2nd century, 3rd century AD, that actually kind of took this and ran with it and, and formed this idea of what we call, a lot of people call heaven today. It's kind of a misconception in my opinion. But uh, that movement, Neoplatonism, uh, ran with this uh platonic idea that um, good goes to heaven, bad goes to hell, human souls are eternal, and you either, um, when you die, your your soul leaves your body and you go to good place or to bad place. This And this idea is so common in the Christian church today. I mean, you grew up hearing this exact same thing, right? This is practically almost the selling point of Christianity. Uh, this is, yeah, not only do you grow up hearing this just about every single Sunday when you go to church and every Wednesday when you go to Bible study, if you're like me, then, uh, you, you are being told that this is, like, this is it. Like, this is, for a lot of people, it's kind of sad, but the reason it seems why they follow Jesus, why they're so invested in the Bible, why they're so invested in learning about God is almost like a fire insurance <laughs> type thing. It is it is to make sure that you go to the good place and not to the bad place. And to me, that is, I mean, 
the idea of going to the good place is fantastic. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm, I'm like, you know, it, it's a, it's a great idea to go to this good place when you die. But I don't think that's the point of all of this. And, and I think we might have read the same N.T. Wright piece in preparing for this. Because uh, <laughs> with, with that, yeah, I, 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 yes, I read the same one about Neoplatonism and how this, how this kind of idea developed later on. That we we go to our our spirit separates from us and we go to the good place, um, but both N.T. Wright and I I listened to a few things by Tim Mackey on this. They both agree that that's not the point of the New Testament when they're talking about the heaven. The whole point is the reunification and the restoration uh, that that we started out in in the garden where everything was perfect and the world of God and the world of humanity overlapped. But then we fell from that, and we can no longer overlap, except in the temple. So we'll get into that. <laughs> and um, but there was no longer this overlap. But then, when Jesus returns, and when the second coming happens, heaven is basically going to come and combine into earth and make a new mm-hmm. creation, uh, which they describe as a city. I think it's interesting that heaven undergoes economic development. <laughs> uh, it starts as a garden and ends yeah. as a city. We don't stay agrarian. That is, I don't know. I like that. It's a fun little detail. <laughs> the part of the reason I think that uh, we have ran with this idea that every good person goes into the good place and their soul passes immediately into heaven is actually because of something that Jesus said in Luke, in chapter 23, verse 43. Uh, we have the repentant thief on the cross being crucified next to Jesus, and Jesus says... Amen, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, yeah, of course, there it is. That's the, that's the extent of it. Jesus said it right there, and that's where we're going to go, and, and that solves that problem. Well, that is actually probably the most mysterious and confusing thing about all this, because everything else that's really written in the New Testament doesn't really indicate that. This is exactly where we go. Uh, immediately after dying, we just go straight to Jesus, and we hang out with Jesus in paradise. The thing that I wrote down about that particular phrase that really tripped me up was, like so many passages where I want to be confirmed in my skepticism, I, um, I wasn't. Uh, the word paradise that's being used there in the Greek, uh, paradisos, is paradise. It is a reference to a paradise, a, a uh, heavenly place in Eden. It's referred to in other places. It's used uh, as that same word in 2 Corinthians and in Revelation. There's not a lot to really read into with the original Greek there. It is, um, you know, there's a reference to it being kind of a reward in in Revelation 2, verse 7. uh, To him who overcomes I will give uh, to eat from the the tree of life uh, while in the midst of the paradise uh, of God. So... We're seeing that, like, yeah, you do the good thing and you go to the paradise. Um, that's really the extent of what we get, though, for what happens right after we die. The only other talk about heaven that we have in the New Testament is the end of everything. What happens in Revelation and how other writers of the New Testament see that. And uh, yeah, and I don't know which version you're using, but in my footnotes here with that verse 43 and with the use of paradise, it it says, yeah, originally a term for the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, 
Um, it was a contemporary term, I'm assuming they mean for the writers yeah. of the Bible, uh, for the lodging place of the righteous dead prior to the resurrection, which this is another thing that I couldn't really find a straightforward answer to for me. Because um, this was a big debate in my church, even growing up. No one seemed to have a real answer. It, and it's that everyone agreed you went to heaven when you died. But then where the fuzzy part was is do you go there immediately or do we have to go to some place and mm-hmm. wait for the resurrection and have to wait for Jesus' second coming? And if we do have to wait, is it going to feel like we're waiting? Or is it going to be, you know, is it like what I said in the other episode, falling asleep, closing your eyes, and all of a sudden it's 7 a.m.? Mm-hmm. Like, you know... Uh, it's very strange. Um, the the NT Wright version I know says uh, you'll be with me in paradise this very day, <laughs> implying that it almost kind of is instantaneous. And but then the, yeah, but the footnote makes me wonder: is this instantaneous travel still to just the waiting room? I think that that is. I've even heard some Christian um, theologians uh, speakers. Um, actually bring up a more unsettling possibility that when we die, we are actually just dead. And we are actually all just dead until the resurrection. And maybe what you're saying about how it feels instantaneous, that might be how it feels, is we might be dead for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then in the resurrection, then we go to paradise, but it will feel like today. It will feel like you blink your eyes and you wake up. There is a a passage in Daniel, and, and you always want to be careful, especially with Daniel and Revelation, when you read too much into what's, you know, don't use it to proof text anything because it was a specific case in a, in a specific prophecy. But in Daniel 12, 2, um, it said that well, those who are asleep in the dirt will wake up and be with God. Um, so they are dead. They're asleep. They're in the dirt until that very moment when the resurrection comes. And that almost makes more sense to me because Jesus' spirit isn't what's resurrected, right? He doesn't just come back in spirit form. His his body is gone, mm-hmm. and, and, and Mary and the others see his actual body. Uh, Thomas sees the, the, the scars in his hands and everything. And so it does almost kind of lend more credence to the idea that your body is actually, yeah, as creepy as it is, it is actually dead. <laughs> you you do die, I guess, apparently. But then it's not forever. It's a temporary mm-hmm. death. And, and yeah, and I don't know which one is... I don't know which one I want to be true. <laughs> I feel like it all... Do, I have no control over it in any way. So... In, in a way, if it we're is, dead, it doesn't really matter, right? Because if we're dead, then we're dead. Exactly. And what, what happens after that's in God's hands, it's not in our hands. And that, I guess, I can see as like a more feasible argument towards something like conditional immortality, where the people who God decided will be resurrected will be resurrected, and the rest are just going to kind of just stay dead like everybody else already was. And, and, and that's a, you know, that's a possibility, I won't say that I know for certain about any of this stuff. I always lean towards universalism because I want it to be true. I want everyone to be with me in the resurrection. That sounds wonderful. I want to be resurrected myself. I don't know. Maybe I will be. Maybe I won't. If it was an option to to be resurrected, if everyone could be given the actual option before they die and say, hey, when Jesus comes back, do you want to be resurrected? You know, if they realize this all was true. I think everybody would say yes. <laughs> I think. 
Like with if if you if if an angel appeared to you and like confirmed a hundred percent that this whole thing was true, and you get a choice between being resurrected into the new paradise or staying dead, I think most people would say yes to the resurrection. <laughs> you know what's funny is I read there were a couple of different articles I read in in preparation for this, and one of the articles made the comment that most people today do not believe that Jesus will be coming back. Most people that are alive today don't believe that Jesus will be coming back, but most people also believe that they will be going to heaven because they are good. So that's an interesting t- statistic. Right? Yeah, we've like separated. We've separated. Yeah, these, these all the lock and the key almost. <laughs> like that's so. I I would love to meet one of these people that does believe in the resurrection of and going to heaven, but does not believe in the second coming of Christ. <laughs> Well, one sounds so nice and the other one's scary, right? Yeah, that's like Satanists who believe in Satan but not God. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, where did you get this from? <laughs> so in um, another reference that Jesus makes to uh, the afterlife, Jesus himself makes to the afterlife, is in John 13 where he implies that the, uh, the, the apostles will follow him there, that um, he's going away, but he won't be gone forever, and that those who die after him will follow him there. Um, that is that sort of unifying idea that we see in the end. We see Jesus back on earth. We see God with human beings again. And it's a very reassuring thing to his apostles that they will be reunited with him. And it's also this kind of beautiful image of being like, you're being called back home. Not this home, because this isn't really our home, but called to to the home with God. And as Paul says, like, our citizenship is with the kingdom of heaven. That is mm-hmm. the true home, the return to the, the homeland that we, for whatever reason, can't seem to remember and and that we can't seem to really even comprehend. And yeah, it is it is a return home, and it's and I like the guarantee, uh, and and I think you even put in the notes that the the imagery of following mm. is also very very compelling in there. Not just merely you're going to go to heaven, you're going to follow me mm-hmm. to heaven, and and the evangelical in me wants to say that that includes following him here on earth. You know, the, you following God Jesus's footsteps. And that is part of your path into mm-hmm. heaven. I don't know if that's actually true, but it just sounds right, <laughs> you know, from what I was raised on. Um, but yeah, I, I love the imagery of following as well. This idea of heaven with God being our eternal home is something that I made a big note about because there's a, there's a lot of passages that refer to us actually belonging with God. And that, that pencils with this idea of the beginning and the end being uh, the the god with man and then us returning to being with god either in another place or god returning to be with us here um this is in second corinthians chapter 5 uh, verses 6 through 8 i'm just going to read this from the dbh translation therefore being always confident and knowing that when at home in the body we are away from home separated from the lord for we walk by faith not by what is seen and we are confident and think it better to depart from home out of the body and come home to the Lord. So this is a concept that's not uh, that that's 
basically, it's almost he says it like it's a foregone conclusion. We know that our home is with the Lord. We know that we actually belong there. And we have confidence that uh, that is what will happen. We don't just say it because we saw Jesus come back. It's just something that we know. It's our faith uh, in assurance of this truth that we're here and it's mm. we have a home here on earth but it is not our permanent home and our actual home is somewhere else and i like that um i didn't have it pulled up just now but i do remember going through that i think in the nrsv it almost said that they they pref- we prefer mm-hmm. to to leave our bodies behind and which again like i just said if you were given an option I think most people would <laughs> like choose the option of resurrection, and and Paul seems to agree with us in this. At least not having this body. I mean, if it was an option. At least, yeah. <laughs> well, I also wouldn't have this body if it were an option, but that's for an entirely different go. reason. <laughs> uh, an- <laughs> uh, another instance of this idea of our citizenship being in heaven is those words exactly in um, Philippians. This is in chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in the heavens, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, Lord Jesus the Anointed, who will transfigure the body of our abjectness, conform to the body of his glory by the operation of his power, for setting all things in order under himself. Again, we know that all will be brought right. We know that we have an eternity and that eternity is where we actually belong. And it's not our it's not gonna be our work that's gonna get that done. It's gonna be Jesus returning or God, you know, returning. Whichever, Father, oh. Holy Spirit, or Jesus. Um, the, the the creation of that new heaven, new earth combination is where we are perfected in our in our bodies. The abjectness is gone and our citizenship is solidified. Um that's complicated though because it, it sort of like gives people an out to not be good people on earth in a way or like not try to create a better world here because we have something else to be concerned with or something like that that almost defeats the purpose to me <laughs> because and we even put in the notes here it, this implication of having a citizenship in heaven almost implies that we are a form of ambassadors mm-hmm on behalf of the kingdom of heaven to this earthly kingdom here that we are forced to live in for however long our lives are. And and if that's the case, we should be on our best behavior. Yeah. If that's the case, we're terrible that's... diplomats. <laughs> then and and we are definitely not doing our job here that we're supposed to be doing. And and if you know, even if there is going to be this new creation and a combination of heaven and earth, there, there is still going to be, I don't know if this is actually how that works, but it's not like Earth is still going to be a part mm-hmm. of that. I don't think that we should then neglect this place that we were given to be our world just because we have a guarantee of another world after yeah. this. Uh, we were still given dominion over the Earth in Genesis for a reason. We were, you know, we still have to take mm-hmm. care of this. And, and so I, I don't love that some Christians seem to shirk real world responsibilities or real world realities in favor of this this looking forward 
it's too much about the destination mm. and not enough about the journey. Yeah, it's it's this idea of if I'm righteous, I will go there. And righteousness, again, is one of those words that's slippery and difficult to pin down. And the writers of the New Testament say that the righteous will be you know, rewarded in heaven. So if your idea of righteousness you uphold, then yeah, then you're taken care of. But there's so much more work to be done in this world. And, and that's, I think, the real task for us. Because once heaven and earth are, are combined again and we're with God again, then we're, we're not going to have jobs. You know, we're not going to have to take care of people when they're sick. That's not going to be something that's our responsibility anymore. Right now, our responsibility is to be stewards of the gifts that God gives us and to maintain the world that we're in so that when everything is right again, we will, you know, we will reap the rewards of our goodness, which is another complicated concept that, that they talk about in, in a few letters. Paul especially talks about in a few letters. And that whole concept of, of righteousness, and I'm going to, if, if, I, if I am righteous, I will reach this paradise, so I'm going to be as righteous as I can. If you read the same, if you read the same New Testament that I've read, it almost seems to cast doubt on whether or not you are righteous at almost every given turn. Uh, it, you know, it, it seems like the whole point is actually we fall quite short of righteousness and that there is no real confidence that we are completely, aside from through the sacrifice of Jesus, there is no real confidence or assurance that we are or can be good and righteous mm -hmm. people. And even then, that's a whole debate of faith versus works. I mean, do you, do you need is it is it just the faith that makes you righteous, or is it is it something else? And that's a different episode entirely. Um, but yeah, it's it's it is then strange. Again, this goes to that idea of fire insurance. It is it is just strange that people will be so sure that it is it is all about this this righteousness, and it's all about maintaining the heaven standard, not the standard of heaven here on earth, but the standard of your behavior that will get you into mm -hmm. heaven. And um, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't care for that. <laughs> well, Paul says in Second Timothy that um, he refers to the good works, essentially, the righteousness as keeping the faith. This is Second Timothy 4. I'm just going to read verses 7 and 8. I have struggled the good struggle. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As for the rest... The crown of justice is laid up for me, which the Lord, the just judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. That almost implies that the only real righteousness, the only real thing that um, is being rewarded of him is the, the work that he did in the service of spreading the gospel, not necessarily in keeping the law, not necessarily in following all the rules, but rather keeping the faith, continuing on in the face of adversity, which he did, you know, was in prison multiple times, lived by faith, had no assurance of income, all of that stuff that he dealt with throughout his life. And and really the, the main task that he found was not like, I'm going to make sure that nobody falls out of line and those Romans stop, you know, having gay sex and all that stuff. It's more, that's three episodes in a row now, I think I've used the phrase gay sex uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna write that one down. I have to make sure I use it every episode. Can we bring back Can we bring back pansexual puddle <laughs> for this episode somehow? We have to go and make sure the Corinthians aren't having any pansexual puddles. We have to make sure that, 
that the Romans aren't having any more gay sex. And as a result, like that's what Paul is saying. No, that's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying that his rewards in heaven are because of his willingness to persist in the face of adversity in spreading the gospel, letting people know about Jesus. That is what the reward, you know, will come for, not because he was a, a righteous dude, not because he did the right things at the right time. That, I think, to me, as someone who is deeply flawed and a sinner, uh, it is so much more comforting to me to know, not that like I expect to have a, a room in, in the inner rooms of God's mansion or whatever in the afterlife or in, in, uh, in the new heaven and the new earth, not because I expect that, but because like the the bar I think people set way too high for themselves to be like I need to be perfect. That that works done already. We don't need to be perfect. We'll never be perfect. That's a waste of our. That's a waste of our time. So it's interesting that you bring up that idea about how this assurance that what 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 made him righteous and what guarantees him this reward in this paradise is the idea of keeping the faith. And, and, and part of this to me, part of this idea of keeping the faith is then also recognizing and holding to that idea that Jesus has forgiven you. And Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, uh, which I'm sure I'll touch on again in a little bit here, but Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that we then no longer had to atone ourselves or cleanse ourselves or sacrifice animals in the temple or anything, that this was now all covered. The bill was paid for, you don't have to worry about it anymore, and you can go on doing, depending on how you want to interpret this, you can go on doing whatever you want, (laughs) in a sense. And I don't, I, this is the slippery slope here, because then we also know Jesus says you shall know them by their fruits. And it does seem to be, at least in my experience and with talking to many other people uh, who have a radical change of faith, that it's not, once once you grasp that idea that the bill is paid and that you don't have to worry about this whole cleansing or sacrifice anymore, you are now almost you almost want to be a better person even more mm. because now you almost feel like there's that freedom and you, you, how do I put this? You're not worried about not being enough. You're not worried about there being some secret punishment. You're not worried about there being some, some underhanded thing that's going to sneak mm. up on you. You know that it's going to be guaranteed and it almost makes you just want to be a better person regardless. Now, the reason I jotted something down and I I promise this connects, at least I really hope it does. We can cut it out if it doesn't. Um, I study conflict resolution, uh, especially things surrounding the topics of extremism, radicalization, terrorism, all those great subjects. And I was just recently doing a paper um, reviewing the literature on the concept of I promise this connects negotiating with terrorists and and the concept of should we or should we not negotiate with terrorists and there is this strange phenomenon that comes up where especially in instances let's say a terrorist group takes someone hostage uh, there is a hostage situation they are making demands you you know give us this and we'll let people go there is this weird phenomenon where if you can negotiate with the terrorists long enough, and maybe you can get a couple people released, maybe you can get them to give a couple concessions, there is this phenomenon where if you can offer them safe passage, you guarantee you're not going to kill them, you guarantee that they can they can go free, if they will release the hostages, they often take that. 
and they often then receive no other concessions really other than just they're they're guaranteed to leave with their lives and they're guaranteed to go back home and then the second part of that is there is then not an increase in hostage situations because there's this idea a lot of people think if you make the concessions if you give them whatever they want if you say we'll let you go unharmed then they're just going to keep doing this more and more because you give them an inch they want to they want a yard next you know but there's 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 this that kind of shows the opposite of that and one other article was very pro negotiating with terrorists not because we should give in to people being being awful and people using terror as a means of getting gains, but rather when you offer terrorist groups, because people become terrorists because they don't have any other options, typically. And that's not me making a normative statement. That is an observational thing. When people run out of options, they become terrorists. Uh, but when you actually negotiate with them and offer open political dialogue, they then realize that there is another way and that they don't have to use violence anymore. And we see lots of instances around the world of groups that are labeled terrorist groups later becoming political parties because they were able to engage in dialogue and negotiation and instead they enter electoralism and enter the electoral arena and they no longer have to use this violence. I don't know if that really connected, but it is, again, I I just couldn't help but see this idea that once you know that there's not a punishment waiting for you, you're willing to do things you didn't think you were willing or able to do before. I think that lording the possibility of eternal damnation over people's heads has done so much damage to building the church on earth. Uh, If we are to do everything that we can to assure people that God loves them and that uh, that there is is a sacrifice that was so great that our sins are forgiven in the eyes of God already, that we should not be using some like vague texts that are not clear in scripture at all about uh, eternal damnation that someone else again took it and ran with it we formed this cultural idea of hell not because of what is being said in scripture directly but because of what we feel like is is right based on well this is the best that we can come up with if that conjecture is so important that it's standing in the way of you spreading the gospel and you're scaring people away and not only that but making people who are already believers misbehave uh that is bad theology that is bad christianity that is not doing things right because we are to build the church we are to become a greater and greater bride for god at the wedding feast and yeah i I think it directly connects um this idea that uh, we have to convince people. I talked a little bit about this on the repentance episode that I just did, also on the Patreon, um, where uh, we have got so many people, so many believers, so many people who um, who evangelize and and preach have gotten so tied up in this idea of doing the good thing and not the bad thing and making sure that you are cleansing yourself of individual deeds that are certainly uh, worthy of damnation, that the people have gotten so wrapped up with that that they have forgotten that this idea of God 
is bigger than us and our faults and our and our failures. Um, the idea of heaven, that God, our Creator, is not watching us with a microscope and making sure that every little individual thing that we say and do is exactly up to His standard. That is a waste of His time. So, uh, yeah, I think that. Um, I don't know where else I was going with that, but we can cut that last little part out. But uh. no, I I think it's perfect. I and and I'm glad that that did eventually connect. That uh, I didn't just bring up terrorism for no reason, because <laughs> um, I am prone to do that occasionally. Uh, can I share a few passages that I found? Of course, Evan. Wonderful. Uh, I mean, I I have like three. Really, I have two. Two main ones, and then three, just a fun one that I had to throw in. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. The first one is, it's very classic. You, We have all heard it a billion times, and you might have even done an episode on this one. I'm actually not even totally sure. Um, but uh, John 1.14. Just John 1.14. Very short. One verse. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And that doesn't really mention heaven, right? But the reason I want to share that is because of that word, that phrase lived among us, uh, also also translated as dwelled or dwelt among us. Um, this word originally translated literally comes out to be tabernacled. Mm. Or, or he pitched his tent. He t- he set up a, his tabernacle among us, and we have seen his glory. I hate saying among us. that uh, That's been ruined for me. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. We have seen him come down and pitch this tent, create this tabernacle, and now this is a heavenly presence on earth. And as I mentioned earlier, and Tim Mackey does a great job explaining this, if you guys just want to look it up, but um, the, the only place where this overlap between heaven and the heavenly world, God's world, God's dwelling place, and then earth, our humanly dwelling place, the only times we see that overlapped are in the Garden of Eden at the beginning when everything's perfect, at the end when everything is reunited and a new creation is, uh, is built, and then in the temple or the tabernacle. Because there is the the room inside the holy the holiest of the holies the holy of holies whichever one it is uh, where that is considered to be the room where you're in the presence of God um, that is the room people had to sacrifice animals to get in that the the sacrifice the sacrifice of the animal somehow absorbs the sin um, I was not there when they came up with that rule I don't know what that means actually but uh, they they had to do it they had to do it in order to get in and some some price had to be paid for these sins that they had committed and there had to be some atonement. So then what Jesus does when he comes down is he, he creates this new tabernacle in the form of him where everywhere that he goes, Tim Mackey puts it as he creates pockets of heaven and there's, there's little tiny places, little small spots of uh, spots of heaven where he heals the sick and forgives and raises the dead and all these other miracles he can perform and and that is this this it's like a sneak peek almost of the soon reunification of heaven that is going to happen at the very end i also love this because 
And it kind of back is backed up by the, the second verse that I have here, which is uh, Luke 17, verse 20, um, which is, uh, Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. And among is also translated as uh, a within you. And it is also also translated as at hand. Mm. The kingdom of God is at hand. And even better, where's where's N.T. Wright's version? God, I the Kindle reader is just so clunky on, on, on computers. Um, N.T. Wright translates it as people won't say, look, here it is, or look over there. No, God's kingdom is within your grasp, meaning it is, you can reach out and touch it. And, and in this, we're kind of supposed to assume that, I get assumptions make an ASS out of you and me, but we're kind of supposed to assume that he's talking about himself. He's talking about this, this living tabernacle that is created within him. And that is the thing that you, these people that he was talking to you could just reach out and touch. They could reach out and grab him and, and be a part of heaven and touch touch heaven. It also, I wonder if you want to go the more metaphysical route with the kingdom of God is within you. I almost wonder with Jesus creating, coming and being this new tabernacle and creating this new this new way and being the ultimate sacrifice, I wonder if we're supposed to kind of take that as the cleansing power of the sacrifice of Jesus was so powerful and was nothing like that of lambs or any other animal that was sacrificed beforehand, that it was able to clear all sins across the entire world for all of humanity from beginning to the end. And now everywhere we are worthy to enter into the presence of God and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now it is it is no longer this thing where we must report to a temple to go to. It is now this thing that we can access anywhere through Jesus, through his intercession, through his sacrifice. I really, I, I, I love all three versions. I love the kingdom of God is among you. I love the kingdom of God is within you. And I love the kingdom of God is at hand. And my favorite is within your grasp, I think. Um... I, don't, I, I love that the very corporeal presence of heaven it's right there that phrase that you use that that tim mackey i think uses i don't know we might have listened to the same tim mackey thing too he has a really great podcast called uh exploring my strange bible and he he put up one of his sermons we did not uh, it's really good uh he put up one of his sermons about revelation and heaven and uh, what our ideas of heaven are and what we get wrong about it but that pockets of heaven idea uh, is so brilliant because it does give an example of the magic that can occur in our eyes uh, before us when God is one with man. The the true like bliss of living that happens when God is with man, that healing, the welcoming, the love, that uh, inclusion that happens when Jesus is is on earth and 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 alive and walking around and doing his ministry. That is a snapshot. That is a um, that's a preview of what heaven's going to be like. It's such a beautiful idea, and it's worth noting also that uh, the temples and the tabernacle in the Old Testament were were always decorated with 
fruit trees and statues of angels and all these all these things and it was sort of to from my understanding to replicate the feeling of the garden of eden to replicate this feeling of original perfection that we once had but have become separated from later and and so it's even like so while the temple and the tabernacle were almost a call back to the old Eden and the old heaven and the old overlap between the human world and, and the heavenly world, Jesus is not so much a callback but a sneak preview for what is to then come later. The new creation and, and the new Eden, the new heaven and earth that's all supposed to come eventually. Um, I, I just... I don't know. It's it's things like that where uh, I I kind of put this in the notes too. Once I started reading these verses and these passages, I started to wonder if we were addressing the whole question of heaven completely wrong, <laughs> and if maybe this whole this whole thing I had the wrong idea about heaven while we were talking about this, and and I think I put too much emphasis almost on what does it physically look like? Where am I going to go? And, and, but now maybe I didn't even realize after all my years of being raised Christian, leaving and coming back, that this was never really dawned on me. Because even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Jesus tells his followers to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I feel like that's one of the lines where, because I was taught the Lord's Prayer is a very like, you, it's, it's a, it's a, you recite it it's a thing that you remember it's almost like a poem and you just kind of like stumble through the words and thy thy kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it even has the rhythm to it and i think people just kind of say that to the rhythm and we don't often stop and think about what that actually means when we say your kingdom come on earth as it is in Mm -hmm. heaven and that is that is ultimately that's like not if you're not convinced that's the main point, that's what Jesus tells you to pray for. <laughs> that's considered to be the perfect prayer. Yeah. And and so it's just it's just this idea that yeah, we go to paradise. Yes, we go to paradise, but that's not really the point. The whole point was that there was paradise. Paradise was lost, and now paradise is going to be restored. A new paradise that we haven't even seen yet is going to be restored, and it's going to be a whole new thing it's going to it's it is among us right now it is within us it is at hand and it's going to be a reality by the time that we are done here yeah it's a perfection the the kingdom of the new heaven and new earth are a perfection of instances of god and man together that we have already seen and it's so typical of us uh as human beings to get lost in the minutiae of this thing or that little thing uh, when people read revelation they read things like the measurements and the numbers of tribes and the different numbers that are used in revelation they get so wrapped up in what those specific numbers might mean that they lose sight of what the actual idea might be this new kingdom or this new temple that that's that's getting built that is um this size and this size or this size and it's enormous those numbers are symbolic yes but the idea isn't that we're building a wall and we're going to, or we're building a giant temple and there's going to be walls around it. And that's what heaven's going to look like. 
It's that it is so massive. It is so far-reaching. This is something that I actually got from a Michael Heiser podcast. I'm not super familiar with him, but he's a theologian and a professor. And he was talking about Revelation and our, our propensity to get lost in these numbers. And he said that the, the size of the structure is meant to emphasize that it will be impossible to be somewhere in this new heaven and new earth that doesn't have God's presence in it. Not that, like, you're going to go to the temple and we're all going to be happy in the temple or we're going to be in the city and we're all going to be happy in the city and that's the good the good place is that city. No, it's that that city is so massive and so far-reaching with so many people included that there won't be a place where you can go in this new kingdom that will be without God. We will be around God at all times. There's no running no. from it. There's no running from it. I love that. <laughs> you can try. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. This I- Shouts out to best sweatshirt <laughs> in the world. This idea of a perfecting of the kingdom or, or this new heaven and new earth being a perfecting of things. Uh, if I can bring up one more passage here, is that all right? Please. Uh, in Second Peter, uh, this is chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, it says, uh, we, in accord, uh, we in accord with his promise look forward to new heavens and a new earth in which justice dwells. That This is uh, you know, a letter like many of the letters that deals with the difficulties that people are facing as early Christians trying to spread the gospel. They are seeing this possibility, this new world where there is justice, because that's their idea of a perfected world where they aren't being killed just for doing what they think is right and spreading this word of God that, guess what, we're all forgiven. God loves us, we're all forgiven, and we're all included. And isn't that groovy? Um, that this that world does not have the hang-ups and the, the evil that we have here today, or that they had then. I got I got one more as well. Uh, yeah, um, this was my you know second and a half one, my my third asterisk one. Um, I'll just read the I'll read the NT Wright translation because I I like again I like the way that he words this one. Um, but it is John uh, chapter fourteen starting at verse one. Uh, it says, "Don't let your hearts be troubled." Jesus continued, "Trust God and trust me too." There is plenty of room to live in my father's house. If that wasn't the case, I'd have told you, wouldn't I? I'm going to get a place ready for you. And if I do go and get a place ready for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be there where I am. And as to where I'm going, you know the way. <laughs> I love the I love the way he says that. You you know it. You know it. Continuing on, verse 5, actually master, said Thomas to him, "We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way?" Then the famous, you know, bathroom wall quote, uh, verse 6, I am the way, replied Jesus, and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him. You have seen him. I love that. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. And it's this, 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 this assurance that Jesus delivers that line with, saying that, you you do know him. You know him because you know me. And you know the way to heaven because you know me. And and you've seen him because you've seen me. And I can't help but like but wonder, especially with the rhetoric that this one was this was written in and John, I can't help but wonder 
he wasn't just talking to them, right? <laughs> I don't like, know. He wasn't just talking to the apostles. I hope he was talking to all of us. <laughs> well, that's always the question. We've all seen him well, Especially now. when he talks yeah. about the um, the mansion uh, that has many rooms and I, I will come get you. Uh, maybe he was just talking to them at that time as like, uh, you, you guys are my friends, so I just want you to know that like, I'll take care of you no matter what happens. Like, be assured of that. But also, there is something greater uh, on the precipice. There's there's other things going on here, and a, and a greater, more foundational transformation in this world is to come. It's it's hard to say. I was um, I was making when I was making my notes, I was referring to the joining of the new heaven and the new earth as the big party. So I'd like to wrap up with a quote that I found kind of comforting. But my, my main questions when I ended my notes here were, but where do we go until then? Do we have an Eden-type waiting room before the big party? Uh, is it like what Daniel 12.2 says, where we're just asleep in the dirt until the big party? Do some dead people go to the big party early? Or do we all come to the party at the same time? Do some people show up late? Uh, I took comfort in this because it is a great unknown. It's something that maybe we're not supposed to know. This is from uh, Thomas J. Ord's uh, book, Pluriform Love. A loving God doesn't punish, and God always forgives. But creatures who choose something other than love choose something other than well-being. They hurt themselves and others. The God of relentless love never gives up, ever. While creatures can say no to God, now and in the afterlife god everlastingly invites all to live lives of love because of relentless love we have grounds to hope all will eventually say yes everlasting persuasive love makes it possible for everyone to experience everlasting bliss i love that i i truly do and 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 I wanted to say about that, that that note you made about it being an unknown and being something that maybe we're not actually supposed to find out until we find out. Maybe it's supposed to be one of those those mysteries that stays a mystery until the ultimate passage from here to there is made. But it did it did bring up um, my fav- one of my favorite quotes of all time. Um, Silence is the language of God. All else is poor translation. I love it. Yeah. No, I I I like to think that so, sometimes the answer is nothing. <laughs> and maybe that is one of the answers that we get from this. Cuz again, we can tell from everything that we just read tonight, we can tell that there is this idea of a paradise. We can tell that there's going to be a new creation and a new paradise made, the com- combination of heaven and earth and we're told we're we're implied that we're gonna get there, but we don't know anything else. Uncertainty is scary. Are we comfortable with just knowing? Yeah, are we comfortable with just knowing those three things? Well, I don't know. I don't think I am. Only because uncertainty is scary, and I think other people think the same way because they've come up with all these extravagant explanations. Uh, and they, they've come up with theories of their own that aren't based in scripture. They've come up with ideas of what happens that really have no basis in what we've learned from what Jesus has said or from what his apostles have said. 
but it's a it's a challenge to say that uh, we have God's assurance that He loves us, that we're forgiven, and that God will sort out the rest. If my friend from class is still listening to this, I do hope that by the third episode, maybe we're not so scared of the idea of the black nothingness, <laughs> the the conscious nothingness, that that the, the the true hell as we called it. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully we're, we're not so scared of that anymore because that is a terrifying thought. But maybe it's not permanent. Maybe it's not permanent. And maybe we don't even realize it. <laughs> Again, I'd like to think that it's you blink and then you're there. You know, what do we know about time? Time's a human creation. When they say God created the earth in seven days, God doesn't know what the heck a day is. <laughs> a thousand years is a day and a day and a thou- is a thousand years to God. So we know, we know that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, easy. Um, thank you again for joining me. I can't wait for our next little series. We'll cook something else up that I think will be really fun. Oh, absolutely, but absolutely. This was a enlightening, um, I think, and and you know, like always, I feel like we probably raised more questions than we than we came up with answers. But that's what scripture is all I think about. That's the point of yeah. this. Yeah, I think that's the really the point of this. Um. God, it feels bad to plug on that on such a wonderful note. But if you want to follow me on SoundCloud, it's uh, I'm, I'm Bimbo Rella on SoundCloud. That's Bimbo and Cinderella mashed up. Um, you can follow me on Instagram, the Second Lavender Scare. Uh, I you know I haven't posted in several several months, and I'm not like an influencer. I also I don't post interesting content. It's just if you want to be my friend, uh, if you listen to this show, I'm sure that you're someone that I'm gonna get along with. So I'm I'm quite confident in that one. Um, hit me up, please. <laughs> Especially if you live in like the DC area. This week's poems by Tony Kushner. This disease will be the end of many of us, but not nearly all, and we are not going away. We won't die secret deaths anymore. The world only spins forward. We will be citizens. The time has come. Bye now. You are fabulous creatures, each and every one, and I bless you. More life. The great work begins. Thanks, everybody. I don't know if you got some shelter, say a place to hide. I don't know if you live with friends and who you can confide.